Well, good morning, everybody. Pastor Steve here, and I am so thankful you are with me for this uh, devotion, whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast. I also want to encourage you, if you've not picked up your Bible reading plan for 2024 yet, please do so this Sunday. They are available. We, um, you know, we only have about uh, three and a half weeks left in this reading plan for 2023, and the new one will begin the first day of January. So pick yours up at the back of the worship center this Sunday at First Baptist Church. Um, today we are in First John chapter two, and before I share with you devotionally what spoke to me. I do want to uh, just say a brief word from a, a teaching perspective, if you will, about one of the words in verse 2. In verse 1, he talks about Jesus being our advocate if we are believers. Then in verse 2, he says that he himself, Jesus himself, is the propitiation for our sins. And that's what most translations will say. Historically, that's how the word was translated, the propitiation for our sin. The NIV translates it, um, um, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But the word literally is halosmos, and it is the idea of propitiation. But what does that really mean? Um, well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that you and I do something to appease an angry God. We do not do anything to appease an angry God. That's not what this word means. What this word means is that God in his grace has removed the very thing, the very barrier that separated us from himself namely our sin. Sin naturally separates sinners from a holy God. Sin naturally creates a barrier between me, you, humanity, and holy God because holiness and sin never go together. So what God did is he removed the barrier. He removed the sin he removed the very thing that separated us so we then would have the opportunity, we then would be able to enter into his presence as a holy God. So that's what this word propitiation is referring to. But note also that he is the propitiation for our sins. Our, those of us who are believers, the same as in verse 1, uh, he's our advocate, intercedes for us. Uh, with the Father. He is our propitiation. But notice, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus is the advocate for believers. He is the propitiation for the whole world, meaning that in dying on the cross, sacrificing himself on the cross and making atonement for our sin on the cross, he did that not for just us, but for everyone the whole world. And so the barrier that separates all of humanity from God has been dealt with in Jesus. And so when people allow Jesus to become their advocate, they accept him as their Lord and Savior and live for him, then they enter into the presence of God that is available for everyone. One of the reasons that I am not a Calvinist, I am not reformed in my theology, 
is this verse and many others. Calvinists believe historically in what is called limited atonement. That Jesus made atonement for the sins of those God has chosen to redeem, to save. I believe most Baptists believe in what we call general atonement, that Jesus' death made atonement for the sins of everyone. It's not applied to everyone because they have to receive that into their lives and allow Jesus to be their advocate. But the atonement was made for everyone and is available to everyone. So just want to do a little teaching on that verse and in particular that word. Now, what spoke to me devotionally is not one verse, but several verses that are saying, uh, in, in a sense, the same thing. There are several verses in chapter 2 that say, this is the evidence of true salvation. That if someone is really a follower, a disciple of Jesus, they've been truly redeemed, truly saved, then this will be true of them, and that will not be true of them. And so the evidence of salvation, there's five I want to point out real quickly. In verses 3 through 6, and we don't have time to read all these verses in this brief devotion, but it is obedience to his commandments, obedience to his words, which means you will live as Christ lived. And Christ was obedient to the word of the Father. You and I are obedient to the word of the Father, to the word of Jesus. Our lifestyles will reflect obedience to the truth, to the word of God. That's one evidence of true salvation. A second evidence is found in verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. And, and those verses talk about how we feel about and how we treat other believers. How we feel about and how we treat other believers, loving them, not hating them. And one of, the, uh, one of the unfortunate things in our contemporary culture, and it's been exacerbated by Twitter or X, as it's now called in particular, is the speed with which one believer will consider another believer a heretic because they don't agree on some doctrinal issue. Now, there are things that make someone a heretic, beliefs that are heretical. They have primarily to do with the person of Jesus, who he is, the way of salvation, etc., the deity, the nature of Christ and God. If you are off on those, then that's heretical. But uh, there are many other issues that, that are important, but they're not of the utmost importance that we can disagree on, and it doesn't make another believer a heretic. And yet we are quick to condemn others as being a heretic. Their heart's not right with God. And brothers, I'm just saying, sisters, I'm just saying, I don't think God is happy with that. So be careful. Be careful. Um, in many ways, when we do that, we're acting too much like the world. So one of the evidence of salvation is love for believers. Billy Graham, especially early in his ministry, took a lot of criticism from the more conservative elements of our evangelical faith because he was willing to do crusades with people who were 
perhaps a little more liberal than us in theology, but who still believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So be careful that you don't quickly call somebody a heretic. You might be walking on a thin, on thin ice in the eyes of God when you do that. Be careful. Number three, third evidence of true salvation is found in verses 15 through 17, which says we live in accordance to the will of God, not the whims and preferences of the culture, that we get our understanding of right and wrong from the truth of God, not from the desires, the lust, the passions of the culture. That's evidence of salvation. Number four, found in verses 22 to 23, is that we accept Jesus for who he really is. We accept that he is the Messiah. In Greek, it would be the Christ, the Christos, the, the Messiah, the Savior, Lord, the deity of Christ. That true that one of the evidences of salvation is that you accept the truth about who Jesus is and you do not deny it. And then the fifth and final evidence of true salvation in chapter 2 is in verse 29 where he talks about uh, a righteous lifestyle. We live a righteous lifestyle. And you're going to see that carry over to chapter 3, which we will talk about tomorrow. So I just wanted to, to share that with you, that there is evidence of salvation, and we have five different evidences given in this chapter. And one final note, just a teaching note I want to point out. If you would look at verse 18 real quickly, he says, Children, it is the last hour. Children, it is the last hour. Just one more place in the Bible where it's obvious that the last hour, the last days, is not referring just to a few years or a brief time immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus. John, the disciple of Jesus, wrote this 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years ago, he said it is the last hour. Just one of many passages in the New Testament that so many people ignore but make it crystal clear that the last hour and the last days is the entire period of human history between when Jesus came the first time and when he will come the second time. You and I are living in the last hour. We are living in the last days. When John wrote this, he was living in the last hour. He was living in the last days just wanted to point that out. God bless you and I'll see you tomorrow.